You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. So one night recently, Melissa and I were going on a walk, and it, it wasn't totally dark outside, but it was dark enough to see the moon, and the moon looked unlike any moon I had ever seen before. It was, it was hanging lower in the sky, and it was an oval shape. It was an, it was an oval moon. And of course, when I saw this, I did what any 21st century American would do. I pulled out my phone and I tried to snap a picture. I wanted to snap a photo of this moon. Now, I don't, I don't know the last time that you've maybe tried to take a photo of the moon, but uh, it, it didn't turn out really well. It's not very easy to do that. So after I tried a few times, I decided to just, just stop and just look. Just just look at this oval moon. It was an oval moon that has everything to do with 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. In today's passage, the Apostle Peter returns again to the topic of suffering, which has been a major theme throughout this entire book. But here, especially in these verses, Peter dives into this topic with more detail, and he gives us here the Christian perspective on suffering. And that's what I want us to look at today. This is a sermon on how to suffer as a Christian. And before I say more, you you might be wondering why it seems like we talk so much about suffering at Cities Church. If you're new to Cities Church, maybe you've heard us talk about suffering way more than what you're used to. And so I just want to take a minute and tell you why that is, okay? First, um, it's because in our preaching, we take books of the Bible and we preach through these books verse by verse. And right now, uh, we are uh, looking at preaching through First Peter, and so we are subject to whatever First Peter is about, and this book happens to be about suffering. So in this series on First Peter, we're talking a lot about suffering. But also, secondly, over the last six years, if you were to go back and look at our sermons, over the last six years, we've talked a lot about suffering, and that is because suffering is a reality in life. And it is the ministry of the Bible through the local church that is meant to help us endure suffering. Today's passage, the Apostle Peter here gives us the Christian perspective on suffering. And he does it in three exhortations. And that's what I want us to look at here. We could think of this as um, how we as Christians should think about suffering. How we as Christians should think about suffering. Three things. First, expect trials as a refining fire. Number two, rejoice in trials as the path to glory. And then number three, hope in God as the faithful creator. We'll look at these three points, but first let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks, who speaks through your word. We ask that you would have him to lead us now to behold the glory of your son. We ask in his name. Amen. Okay, so when it comes to how we as Christians should think about suffering, number one, 
expect trials as a refining fire. And just a heads up, that word there, that phrase, refining fire, I'm going to say that at least five more times. Okay, just so you know, refining fire. We see this in verse 12. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Verse 12 here, Peter is reminding us that suffering is not abnormal in the Christian life. Suffering is not strange. And we've already seen this in chapter 3 from a couple weeks ago. At the end of chapter 3, remember, Peter is talking about the gospel event, how Jesus suffered on the cross and how he was raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of God. And we're supposed to keep in mind that those two things always go together, the suffering of Jesus and the victory of Jesus. And we don't just hold these two things together, but we have to understand their connection, right? It's that Jesus' victory came through his suffering. The glory of Jesus' resurrection came through the shame of Jesus' cross. Jesus and his gospel show us that suffering is part of God's plan. And that's implied in chapter 3. What's implied there in chapter 3 is that we should not think it's strange when suffering comes upon us, right? It's part of God's plan. What's implied there is now explicit. It's clear in chapter 4. Peter says it super simply, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. And the opposite of being surprised by something is to expect something, right? And, and those two responses, surprise and expectation, they look very differently. I know this from a few nights ago. A few nights ago, it was, it was late, it was dark, and um, I was inside, I have a couple of boxes that I was breaking down in, inside the house, and then I went outside to take the boxes to the garbage. And when I went outside, I, I, I noticed that some children who will remain nameless had all the lights on in their room and they were up against the window playing with Legos. And the house was shut down, okay? Everything was late. The house was shut down. The house was quiet. Everything was quiet. I am not normally outside at this hour, but while I was there, I thought I would catch these kids from the outside. And so I very calmly went and I put my face up against the window and I stared in like a weirdo. Okay, it was and at first they they didn't see me. But when they did see me, they were surprised. And and you know what? They acted like they were surprised. They behaved as if they were surprised. They, there was a lot of motion, a lot of movement. There was a lot of frenzy. And, and Peter, what Peter's saying is, he says, hey, when hardship, when suffering, when trials come into your life, don't be like that. Don't, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when these trials come upon you to test you. What's really important though in verse 12 is why we should not be surprised. And we see this in how Peter describes the suffering. Peter calls suffering fiery trials that come upon you to test you. 
And the word here in verse 12 for fiery trial is actually one word, and it simply means burning, just burning. English translators uh, add the word trial here because it's the context, but what Peter is saying literally is, do not be surprised when the burning comes. Do not be surprised when the burning comes upon you to test you. And this is important because it means that this burning has a purpose. The purpose is to test you. The image here is of a refining fire. It's the same idea that we've already seen from Peter in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says, chapter 1, verse 6, you have been grieved by various trials. And the word there for trials is the same word that he uses in chapter 4, verse 12, for test. You've experienced, Peter says, you've experienced these trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, our faith is like gold. And suffering is like the fire that refines the gold. This changes everything. Because this means that there is a purpose in suffering beyond our pain. God is at work refining us. And this whole concept of a refining fire is one that Peter gets from the Old Testament. He's not making this stuff up. Peter has been shaped by Scripture in places like Psalm 66, verse 10, where the psalmist says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. Or in Zechariah 13, 9, where God is speaking about His people, and He says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. Or Isaiah 48, verse 10, where God says to His people, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. See, based upon the testimony of Scripture and what God has done and has promised to do for His people, the Apostle Peter wants us to understand what our suffering is about. Our suffering is a refining fire, and God is at work through the fire. We also see this in this passage here in verse 17. Verse 17, Peter is giving us another Old Testament allusion. If you just, just skip down to verse 17 for a minute. Peter says there, in reference to our suffering, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And the household of God literally is house of God here, which is important because in the Old Testament, the house of God is the temple. And a promise of God in the Old Testament is that He will purify His temple. The prophet Malachi prophesied that one day the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, will come to His temple. And Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. So the judgment of the Lord here, the judgment of God's house here, this affliction, this fire, is not about punishing sinners. It's about purifying His people. 
It's a refining fire. And so Peter, with all of this Old Testament background, he tells us that a refining fire is what's happening in the midst of our suffering. The house of God, the temple of God, the dwelling place of God church is now us. And when suffering is part of our lives, it does not mean that God is absent, but it means that God is present, especially present, especially at work. He's shaping us, refining us, forming us for our ultimate good. That's why you should not be surprised by fire. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. Suffering is not strange, but God is using that fire to refine you. Peter says, as a Christian, the way to think about suffering is to expect trials. Number one, expect trials as a refining fire. Number two, also rejoice in trials as the path to glory. Rejoice in trials as the path to glory. Now we see this in verses 13 to 16, but there are at least three questions that come up here. And I want to try to address each one of these questions head on, but I just want you to know it's going to take a little bit of time. So I need you to bear with me for a little bit here. Okay. It's going to take a little bit of time, but I think it's worth it. Let's start in verse 13. There's the negative exhortation we saw in verse 12. Don't be surprised. Then there's the positive exhortation in verse 13 to rejoice. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So here, Peter wants us to go beyond just expecting suffering. He wants us to rejoice in suffering insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. And that's an important qualifier right? He does the same thing here in verse 15. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, he does it again in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, see, we we can all see what Peter is doing here. He's not just talking about suffering, but he is talking about suffering as a Christian, suffering as a Christian. That's the important qualifier here. And that important qualifier leads to, I think, what probably is the most important question when we face suffering. And it's that, how do we know whether we're suffering as a Christian or not? How how do we know if it's Christian suffering or not? That's a big question. We should ask that question. We should feel some tension there. And I want to just take two examples from real life situations in our church. Consider two examples. Over here, you're a Christian and you get fired from your job because you hold to the Christian understanding of sexuality. Then over here, you're a Christian and you you get diagnosed with brain cancer. Both kinds of suffering are happening to Christians, but are they both suffering as Christians? Get the question? Both kinds of suffering are happening to Christians, but is both kinds of suffering Christian suffering? Yes. 
Yes, it is. And so does 1 Peter chapter 4 apply to both? Yes, it does. Now, to be clear in this passage, just to be clear, I think Peter has persecution in direct view. That was the immediate threat for his original audience. These Christians were slandered and insulted. They were fired from their jobs because they were Christians. But verse 15 is where Peter shows us the real contrast when it comes to the kinds of suffering there are. He says in verse 15, in contrast to suffering as a Christian, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. You see that? The contrast to Christian suffering is suffering that is retribution for wrongdoing. If you murder someone, if you steal something, if you do evil, if you meddle in other people's business, if you do those things and life gets hard for you, so what? That's the way it goes. Those are consequences. We live in a world of causality. If you do those things and life gets hard, that's the way it, that's the way it goes. Christian suffering, though, is not retribution for wrongdoing. But, going back to verse 12, Christian suffering is suffering that comes upon you. You who are a Christian. Whether it's slander or sickness, whether it's getting fired or undergoing chemo, whether it's that you get yelled at by your neighbors because you are intolerant, or you lose a loved one in a horrible car accident. If you are a Christian and these things happen to you, you are suffering as a Christian. It's not the type or the cause of your suffering that makes it Christian, but it's the purpose of God at work in your suffering because you are a Christian. See? In your suffering, Christian, in your suffering, you are sharing in the suffering of Christ. And Peter says you should rejoice. Rejoice. But why? <laughs> why? Question two. Why do we rejoice in suffering? Verse 13 again. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that so, or, or so that, he's saying, you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Peter is saying that our rejoicing now in suffering is so that for the purpose of our rejoicing and gladness when the glory of Jesus is revealed. And, and Peter here is talking about the return of Jesus, which he mentions at least four times in this letter. Jesus, Peter knows, we know Jesus is coming back. And Peter says that if we rejoice in our suffering now, then on that future day, when we see Jesus, we will rejoice and be glad, which means there will be more joy. There will be more joy in our future on the other side of our sharing in Christ's suffering. And it's more joy because in our future, we will not share in His sufferings anymore, but we will share in His glory. And see, Jesus Himself taught us this. In His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That phrase, rejoice and be glad, that's the exact same phrase that Peter uses here in verse 13. Remember that the apostle Peter heard Jesus say these words. He heard Matthew 5.11 from the mouth of Jesus. And so he tells us here, rejoice now in trials because through those trials, you will have a better future ahead. We also see this idea in the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is one of the greatest chapters in the whole Bible about our future. The Apostle Paul says there in verse 17 of Romans 8 that because we in Christ are the children of God, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Did you hear, did you hear that? Because of our union with Jesus, we share in His sufferings now in order that we will share in His glory later. And so, if we rejoice now, we will rejoice later, but the joy later will be even deeper and greater, and we, we, we have to keep that in view. Otherwise, none of this makes sense. If suffering is all we get in the Christian life, that is not something to rejoice in. That would be crazy. It's our future with Jesus that makes the difference. And that's what our present suffering points to. The trials that we experience today, the suffering of Christ that we share in today, it verifies to us that we are on the path to sharing in His glory. That's what verse 14 is about. Look at verse 14 for a minute, okay? Just fix your eyes there on verse 14 and hold on tight, okay? Because this is, this is, a, this is next level right here, verse 14, okay? If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. Now, I think again here, Peter is alluding to the teaching of Jesus in, Ma in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Remember, Peter first heard Jesus say this paradox. Blessed are you when you are insulted. Peter has heard Jesus teach this. I, I think, again, this applies to any kind of trial Christians might face. It's not only insults, but it's every kind of suffering as a Christian. Every kind of suffering as a Christian is actually a blessing because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And with this language, Peter is alluding back to the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 11. Now, Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about the Messiah. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The, the Spirit of God 
resting upon the Messiah was the sign of messianic identity. This is how you're going to know who the Messiah is, which is why at Jesus's baptism, right? When Jesus comes out of the water, Matthew tells us that immediately the heavens were open and the spirit descended like a dove. And what did it do? It rested on Jesus. That was a fulfillment of Isaiah 11 verse 1. It was saying, Matthew saying, Jesus indeed is the promised Messiah. Look, look, the Spirit of God rested on Him. He's the Messiah. And now here, in 1 Peter 4, Peter takes that same messianic sign and he applies it to us in that the same Spirit that rested on Jesus and proved that He was the Messiah, it now rests on us. That Spirit now rests on us and He proves that we belong to the Messiah in our suffering. It's the, the blessing in our suffering is that we belong to Him. It's that we know that the Spirit confirms and assures us that we belong to Jesus. That's the blessing. That's what it means for the Spirit of glory and of God to rest on you in your suffering. And in verse 16, Peter says, hey, this is nothing to be ashamed about. But we are to glorify God in this calling. We are Christians. Got that? We're Christians, church. We are Christians. The trials that we experience with Jesus are on the path to glory with Jesus. And so we rejoice. We rejoice. Question three, you've probably been thinking it. Okay, so how, how does this rejoicing look? Because this is still weird, right? Rejoicing and suffering. <laughs> Peter, what do, you, what do you mean rejoice? I'm not sure how you imagine rejoicing, but chances are we all have a pretty one-dimensional understanding of what rejoicing is. If you're like me, you hear the word rejoice and you probably think party hats and cake, right? And that's not wrong if you think that, because those things are part of rejoicing. There is an exuberance of joy that the Bible calls us to, singing and dancing and mirth. That is part of biblical joy. But joy is also, joy is also more than that. And this is where, to be honest, this is just where we get into the deeps. A couple weeks ago, I was able to see a friend of mine, Paul Middleton, who's a, a pastor down south. And uh, last November, Paul and his wife lost their 20-year-old son in a car accident. And a couple weeks ago when I saw Paul, it was the first time that I've seen him in person since the accident. And so I, I gave him a big hug and I I said to him, brother, you are living a nightmare. 
And he looked back at me and he said to me through tears, You don't know the way that Jesus has been with me. And we're, we're treading into mystery here. We, we tread into mystery here. But my friend Paul, in his tears, he had joy. And we know that this joy exists. We know it exists because Jesus himself has been there. Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night before the crucifixion, the night before he experienced the worst kind of suffering any human has ever experienced. Jesus is on his knees. He's praying, begging God in the garden. And what did he ask the Father? My Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled, and he did not want the suffering that laid ahead. If there were just any other way. This was real suffering. Real suffering. And then also in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, speaking about the suffering of Jesus, we read that for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross so somehow in his terrible distress he had the capacity for joy even in the midst of his pain jesus could look down the path and he could know joy and when we share in his sufferings we share in that this is a joy unlike common joy because it's a joy that takes the long view. This is the joy of hope. And that's what we see in verse 19. This is our last point, okay? A Christian perspective on suffering means, number one, we expect trials as a refining fire. It means, number two, we rejoice in trials as the path to glory. And then here, number three, we hope in God as the faithful creator. Verse 19, this is Peter's conclusion to the passage. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. To suffer according to God's will is another way to say to suffer as a Christian. And then another way to explain joy in suffering is to entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. I think the way that Peter refers to God here is really important. He calls him a faithful creator, which means he is highlighting the sovereign goodness of God. When we remember that God is the creator, we remember that he is sovereign over everything. All things depend upon him. He is in ultimate control. And when we remember that God is faithful, that he's a faithful creator, we remember that the exercise of his sovereignty is always in line with his promises. God will keep his promises to us and his promises are always for our good because God himself is good. When 
When Peter calls God here the faithful Creator, he's saying simply that God is great and God is good. God is great and God is good. And you may have learned that as a child. But in the midst of suffering, the truth of God's greatness and goodness is what seems most dim. Right? It's because suffering comes upon us like a cloud. It turns us and twists us and it distorts our perspective and it makes us think like there is such a thing as an oval moon. I went on that walk with Melissa. And on the walk, the moon looked like an oval. Sometimes, you might think the moon looks like half a pie. Sometimes, you might think the moon looks like a crescent. I saw the moon, and it was an oval. But here's the thing. The moon is always round. The moon is always round. There's a children's book all about this. My favorite children's book. The moon is always round. Just because the moon appears a certain way at a certain time, it does not change what it is. The moon has never been anything but round. And so God has never been any way but sovereign and good. God is always sovereign and good. He is your faithful creator. And in your suffering, in your suffering, you can trust Him with your soul. You can trust Him with your soul. You can rejoice in your hardship. Hope in God. Because the moon is always round. That's what brings us to the table. Because here at this table, every week is where we come together and we remember, we declare that God is both great and good. God has given us the whole Bible as the testimony to who He is. And it's at the cross, especially, where we see His heart in its most vivid display. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, we see that indeed God is sovereign and He is good. That is the place of our salvation. And this morning, as we eat the bread and as we drink the cup, we are giving Him thanks. We are giving the Lord Jesus Thanks. And so we have this meal each week as the covenant members. We share in this table as the covenant members of our church. But if you're here and you trust in Jesus, if you hope in Jesus, if you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. We'll come serve the bread to you now. The body of Jesus is the true bread. The blood of Jesus is the true drink. Let us serve you.